0: Welcome to Episode 12 of the Inside Elections Podcast, where we analyze elections in a nonpartisan, data-driven, and accessible way. In this episode, we'll talk about Baseline, Inside Elections' way of measuring the partisan performance of every district in every state, and we'll go over some of the most evenly divided seats in the country, and we'll have a new guest on the podcast to help walk us through it all. Buckle up.
1: Hello, I'm Jacob Rubashkin. And one of my favorite memories this year was going to Kings Dominion in the middle of a rainstorm in Virginia's fifth congressional district represented by Republican Bob Good.
0: And I'm Nathan Gonzalez. And one of my favorite memories of the year was going on a cruise with my family. Uh, We left out of Florida's 27th district in the Miami area, uh, represented by Republican Congresswoman Maria Elvira Salazar. Uh, Jacob, we're here at the beginning. We're in the middle of holiday season. What was your most memorable holiday gift?
1: So I've been thinking a lot about this and, uh, I think one of the most memorable for me was uh, probably over uh, close to two decades ago now, uh, maybe fifteen, sixteen years or so. Uh, my parents got me and my two sisters uh, a for for hanukkah, they they got us a, a Robo sapien, which was a remote controlled humanoid robot. Uh, that was very popular in the mid 2000s. You could make it do all sorts of different moves. You could walk it around, make it dance, uh, make it say funny things. Uh, I spent a lot of time in my basement playing around with the Robo Sapien as a young child. So uh, that's what comes to mind when I think about uh, some memorable holiday gifts. What about you?
0: Would, does that, uh, would that be available to be on the podcast? Is, is that <laughs> one of the features?
1: You know I think that his uh I think that his speech capabilities are pretty limited but uh maybe not this podcast maybe maybe he could be on some others and they wouldn't notice but I uh, I think he would have to be on in a limited capacity I mean Unless patched the software recently
0: i'm setting the bar i'm not setting the bar high here uh so i don't know maybe we should consider maybe we should consider it um you know one of my favorite probably christmas gifts uh I, i remember uh when we got a nintendo uh you know and this is like the original nintendo and and that was a huge deal because you know our family was not uh, we didn't have a we didn't have a lot of money and uh, a lot of people a lot of friends had one before us and so that was that was huge in in order to play the original super mario brothers uh so that was uh that was a lot of that was a lot of fun and actually um when we were in oregon most recently and i took my boys back we found i was getting rid of some stuff and we found my original sega genesis and they were going crazy because we don't have a video game system at home and so we plugged it in and it worked and so to hear you know my, my boys including my seven-year-old play nba jam and he's mm. he's yelling boom shakalaka you know it's just pretty <laughs> it was it was pretty it was pretty funny uh, well in case uh, any of you out there missed the last episode, our friend and colleague and former podcast mate, Aaron Covey, is heading over to work with our friends at the Cook Political Report. Uh, so we'll have some new voices uh, on the podcast in these upcoming episodes, including our first special guest, uh, we'll, who we'll have a little bit later on. Uh, but before we get to our, our main topics, uh, let's do some headlines. Uh, Jacob, kick us off.
1: Yeah. So uh, big congressional news out of uh, the House of Representatives this past week. Former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy officially submitted his resignation from Congress, effective at the end of this year. Uh, The California Republican held the speakership for a very tumultuous nine months at the beginning of 2023, before he was ousted by a renegade faction of his own party. Uh, There will be a special election for this Bakersfield area seat. Uh, it has not been set yet by Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, and it is the most Republican seat in California, so it will be filled by another Republican. But in the immediate short term, it does mean that the House Republican majority will be short one member uh, for the next couple of months in Congress.
0: And. Not just it's already short a member with the expulsion of George Santos in New York now down McCarthy um, and actually likely to be down another vote uh, because uh, Ohio Republican Bill Johnson is set to become the next president of Youngstown State. So that will uh, he'll be vacating his northeast uh, northeast Ohio district. Uh, it's It's also a very Republican district. It's actually. I believe the only congressional district that voted against that uh, marijuana legalization measure that was on the ballot earlier this year so that gives you a window into how conservative this part of this part of ohio is but uh, because he hasn't officially uh, resigned yet the special election has not been set but that takes the republican majority down even another vote and we should add that there is a a democrat who is who is going to resign soon. Brian Higgins from the Buffalo area in New York, he's taking another job as well. So the the votes are going to be harder to come by, particularly for, particularly for Republicans.
1: The House majority, Nathan, as we know, is already so narrow that it's become b- pretty much impossible for them to pass uh, big ticket items on a party line vote. That's why they've been using suspension, which requires a two thirds vote uh, in order to uh, draw support from Democrats on some of this big ticket legislation we've seen pushed through in recent months. Uh, but on anything that requires a party line vote, like, say, an impeachment, uh, Republicans hypothetically, hypothetically speaking, uh, Republicans have their work cut out for them just on a pure numbers game between McCarthy and Santos and uh, soon Bill Johnson. So what else has happened in the last week or so? There was big news in the presidential arena, never back down the super PAC that has been backing the DeSantis presidential campaign is coming apart at the seams at probably the worst possible moment for the Florida governor. Uh, The group had been seeded with uh, over $100 million that DeSantis himself actually raised while he was running for governor uh, for his reelection in 2022. Um, and it's essentially been the real DeSantis presidential campaign all along. It's been running pretty much all of the pro DeSantis ads. It's been planning DeSantis's campaign events, even paying for the bus that has been driving him around Iowa. Uh, in recent weeks, though, several top staffers, I think seven top staffers just in the last month have either resigned from the PAC or been fired, uh, most notably and recently mega consultant Jeff Rowe, who was long thought to be the real brains behind the operation there. Uh, there's also reporting from the AP that the DeSantis campaign may have had uh, communications, private communications with the leadership of the super PAC, which is, of course, prohibited under federal law, given that they are supposed to be an independent group. So a lot of issues with the DeSantis campaign universe uh, with just a couple weeks before the Iowa caucuses.
0: So I feel like with the narrative coming out of this news was that this experiment failed, right? That this super PAC, the farming out your campaign to the super PAC, that it just, that it's, it's, it didn't work and it's never going to work. And I, and I wonder though, if, if there were if it was more due to the candidate or more due to the circumstances of the race that they were basically facing an incumbent uh former president donald trump in the race that that maybe this isn't the true a true good test of whether this formula can work um i don't know but what do you am, am i wrong in that
1: i don't know if we're ever going to get a really clean test of of what we are looking for, the answer of whether a super PAC can essentially become a campaign uh, for its desired candidate. But I do think it's notable that in the four presidential elections that we've had since the Citizens United decision, 2012, 2016, 2020, and now 2024, uh, you can look at, and point to a number of candidates who did try this route, the super PAC first route, uh, DeSantis, of course, but also Jeb Bush back in 2016, the right to rise pack uh, also had a hundred million dollars and was going to help push Jeb Bush to the nomination. That was a, a pretty spectacular failure. So uh, obviously, Jeb Bush, DeSantis, not the best candidates for different reasons, uh, but the I do think it's notable that it hasn't been successful yet on the presidential level level. Um, on the Senate level, we have seen it be successful. Super PACs in Arizona and Ohio were able to essentially win their candidates' nominations uh, last cycle. I, I think that's going to be the at least the short-term future of the Super PAC uh, is going to be much more about winning races at the House and Senate level. At the presidential level, though, we've seen it's not enough to get someone who wouldn't otherwise be winning perhaps or wouldn't otherwise be highly competitive into a place where they can win the nomination
0: yeah maybe the expectation that desantis would win is not the right one but if the experiment was if that setup was going to work at least he should have improved from when he entered the race and i don't think by any quantitative measure he's really in any better shape than he was uh earlier in the year when he got into the race. So I, I, I think probably yeah. other candidates are going to think twice before really going all in on the all in on the super pack.
1: Well, look, I think probably other donors are going to think twice, right? It's one thing if the candidates want to do it or not. It's another thing if you're looking at Ken Griffin or Bernie Marcus or any of these uh, GOP mega donors and asking them to cut a check for $10 million to a super pack uh, when they're now skeptical they're going to get any real value out of it in the long run.
0: Yeah. If you have a super PAC with no money, you've just got a lot of paperwork. Uh, that's probably that's probably the lesson there. Um, all right. And finally, uh, in Senate news, uh, former President Donald Trump endorsed Bernie Moreno in the competitive Republican primary to take on Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown. Um, State Senator Matt Dolan and Frank LaRose are also in the race. Uh, so and it's not a total surprise that Trump endorsed Moreno. Trump has said more nice things about Moreno and this is the path that we're on, but it's, it was formalized, uh, just, uh, just within the last couple of days. Uh, we've seen Trump's endorsement was influential in the most recent primary in Ohio in the, uh, in the state's other seat where it helped take JD Vance from probably third or fourth place and, and getting him to first place. But Trump's endorsement is not a guarantee that someone is going to win. Uh, you, uh, in the 2022 Alabama Senate race, uh, Trump was calling uh, Katie Boyd Britt uh, an assistant. Uh, that's what he called her, even though she was a chief of staff to former Senator
1: Richard Shelby. And now Trump should call her
0: senator uh, because she won that race in spite of in spite of his endorsement.
1: Yeah, well, he would argue that he ultimately did endorse her, uh, but only after it was pretty clear she was going to win. Um I, I think that the Trump endorsement of, of Bernie Marino, certainly not unexpected. He was not going to endorse Matt Dolan, who is perhaps not anti-Trump, but post-Trump in his Republican Party disposition. Uh, and And Frank LaRose, the Secretary of State, At one point was seen as a more moderate Republican who stood up to some of Trump's fictions about the 2020 election, uh, but has tried very hard in recent months, really, since getting into this election to uh, shore up his support from the Trump wing of the party, uh, most notably just a couple weeks ago endorsing J.R. Majewski the uh, very flawed Republican House candidate in Ohio's ninth District, who everyone pretty much understands will not be able to win that seat. But because he's the most uh, pro-MAGA candidate, we've seen a lot of Ohio Republicans flock to him in in an effort to curry favor with Trump. Um, uh, Look, I, I think that there are fewer contested Republican Senate primaries on the map this cycle. Ohio was really one of the only big ones at the moment. And so there have been fewer opportunities for Trump to wade in and support a candidate. Um, Last cycle, there were races in Pennsylvania and New Hampshire and Arizona, uh, Colorado, all all sorts of places where uh, Trump was able to flex his muscle. Uh, We may get there uh, with primaries potentially brewing in Wisconsin and Montana, uh, already a primary in Michigan. But so far, Uh, Trump has been a little bit more hesitant to endorse. He endorsed in West Virginia. Now he endorsed in Ohio. We'll see how those two races play out uh, moving forward.
0: And maybe Trump has been more distracted. Uh, he has his own race that he is focused on, and uh, court cases in five different, uh, five different places. If you count the four felony, the four cases with felony indictments, and then the civil case in New York as well. So he's he's got a little bit more on his plate than what he did, what he did last cycle. And we should remind everyone that this seat in Ohio is critical for the battle for control of the Senate. Republicans are already plus one in the fight for the Senate because they're likely to gain the West Virginia seat that Joe Manchin is uh, not running for reelection. And then now it comes down to really Ohio and Montana, where in Montana Senator John Tester is running. And Republicans feel pretty good about any of the three Ohio candidates. They each Kind of bring different things to the table, whether it's money or statewide credentials, uh, but they feel like they're going to have a better-funded candidate against Senator Brown than what they did last time when he when he faced uh, Congressman Jim Renacci. So it's all this is Ohio. This is just the beginning of an Ohio of talking about Ohio for the next eleven months. The Inside Elections podcast is sponsored by George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management, or GSPM. Uh, the GSPM program offers master's degrees in legislative affairs and political management with in-person and online class schedules designed for the working professional, uh, you all know that I am a graduate of the GSPM uh, program. Uh, it was beneficial for me. I knew I wanted to get uh, an advanced degree, uh, but I didn't want to I didn't want to go down the uh, the law school route or, or any other route and I I liked I picked GSPM because it was more practical and I was learning from campaign professionals, people who have been in campaigns or run for office themselves. And so and that knowledge was was valuable and it helped me do my job as a political analyst right right from uh, right from the beginning. And so uh, click on the link and check out what the GSPM program has to offer. Before we dive into baseline, I wanted to introduce our friend and colleague Bradley Washer. Uh, as a contributing analyst for us here at Inside Elections, Bradley certainly isn't a stranger. Uh, some of you might remember him from our our election night live streams that we did last cycle. Uh, but he is the driving force behind the data work that we do. You've seen his work. You just might not have known what was going on uh, behind the scenes. So he's the perfect guest to be, he's the perfect candidate to be our, our first podcast guest. Uh, Bradley, before we dive into everything, you have to tell us what congressional district you grew up in uh, and which district you were born in if those were two different districts.
2: Yeah, so as Nathan said, hi, I'm Bradley. And the answer actually is two different districts, but maybe not for the reason that you'd think. I'm originally from Montgomery, Alabama, and I believe I grew up in the second district, which is currently represented by Republican Barry Moore. But literally, if you went across the street to the Walmart grocery store, I would be in the seventh district, which is Democrat Terry Sewell. And the other funny thing is that the answer changes whether you ask me this year, 2 years ago or 4 years ago. Because I'm sure as our listeners know, Alabama has been in the process of redrawing its congressional maps due to court-ordered redistricting. So you ask me which district I'm from, the answer literally can change by the week.
0: <laughs> I love it. The, the complex it should be a simple question but it's not simple because it involves redistricting in congressional districts. But that's that's part of that's part of what we do and and part of why we why we enjoy it. All right. When you hear the word baseline, many of you might think about baseball, might think about basketball. Uh, To others, baseline might make you think of Rancid's uh, journey to the end of the East Bay. Or it might make you think of Fugazi's waiting room. or even Bon Jovi's living on a prayer. But today, we're talking about Inside Elections metric to measure the partisan performance of every district and every state. I can feel the electricity in the air as we talk about this. Uh, Bradley, what is baseline and how does it work?
2: Well, I guess I have to put this away because we're talking about a different kind of baseline.
0: So so he puts his guitar hero, his guitar hero guitar away. I'm sorry, we can maybe we can have that at the end. But uh, tell us, tell us what baseline is and uh, how does it work?
2: Yeah. So in one sentence, baseline is a partisan performance metric, an average of election results that tells you the typical performance of a Democratic or Republican candidate in every congressional district or state. The thing that makes Baseline special is it's an average of every federal and statewide election over the past four years in that congressional district. So rather than just looking at the most recent presidential or the most recent House races, we go as deep as possible, looking at the governor, Senate, attorney general, auditor, all the way down to commissioners and state Supreme Courts if they're listed as the office. So Baseline looks at a comprehensive picture to determine how each party is expected to do in each district or state
0: so for a little bit of context uh i've been thinking about a metric like this for for quite a while um nathaniel rakich who's now at 538 helped get this from inside my head out into something that is more logical um ryan matsumoto helped us uh, move it along and then bradley has really done uh, an enormous amount of work to get us to get us up to this point is now the, the caretaker of the data but bradley tell people how many Races or elections are involved in this metric because we again we're talking about four cycles worth of election data. But so, how many individual elections are are in this are, uh, in this
2: calculation? Well, in one phrase, a lot. But to be more specific, because we want to look at all 435 districts across all 50 states, we wanted precinct-level election results, because there are a lot of different districts that are split between counties, and then sometimes the counties themselves are split. So you need to go as granular as possible to get the data necessary. In total, our final results by congressional district span 7,950 lines. And to give you a sense of what that number actually means, for every district in Texas, we have had 44 races because that's just how many offices are included on the roster so that includes obviously the presidential and governor at the top but we go all the way down to the railroad commissioners for that state and that's why baseline gives you such a good idea of what's going on in every district
0: so jacob i know you're gonna jump in here but bradley give someone just a a one example of of uh, the percentages of a, of a district you know what does it look like in in, in the hands and in the eyes of, of real people uh, you know a Republican percentage Democratic percentage
2: Yeah so showing my hand a little bit just looking at the chart right in front of me let's talk about Iowa's third district which is in Des Moines southwestern part of the state and represented by first term Republican Zach Nunn. in Iowa's third the typical Democrat is expected to earn exactly 49 percent whereas the typical Republican is expected to earn 48.7. So the 0.3% baseline margin is one of the most tight in the entire country.
1: Bradley, you have assembled this this massive trove of data, millions of lines on a precinct level, uh, thousands of individual election results at the congressional level. Um, In any given congressional district, what are you actually doing with those numbers to produce the uh, final baseline score.
2: So baseline's goal is to take a trimmed mean, which isn't as complicated as it sounds. It's basically just an average where you drop the highest value and the lowest value. Some people have asked why we don't take the median for states that literally have 45 results per district. And the reason is that the trimmed mean cuts outliers and looks at the central tendency in a very similar way. And also, we just kind of like having a fun way to explain what we're doing with the results. And trimmed mean is a pretty nice phrase to attach to it.
0: Yeah. And. The, the other way, the, the other thing we're trying to do with baseline and why we include four cycles worth of election data is to try to get rid of or, or try to account for what might be outliers of an election cycle. Right. Some cycles are great for Republicans or great for Democrats. And so by including the most recent two presidential elections and the most recent two midterm elections, that will hopefully kind of smooth out some of those electoral waves and and give us a, a more typical percentage for how a, a typical candidate, uh, a Democrat and Republican will will perform knowing that some candidates are going to raise more money or less money or they're going to have more baggage as a candidate. but we're trying to get that baseline. you should drink every time I say that uh, get that typical uh, baseline so that then you know we can we can move on to other
1: other measures and and i have always been curious about this and i truly have never asked this before so i don't know the answer here uh but w- w- in the handful of states that do off off year elections like new jersey and kentucky and louisiana and virginia how are those factored into baseline do you treat those states uh, those cycles as uh their own individual cycles that count toward that four year uh threshold or do you fold them in so that we're going back to 2016 2018 2020 2022 for for every state uh, even the ones that have year uh, off year elections
2: Exactly what you described, Jacob, and for the states that do have off year like Kentucky, Mississippi, Virginia and New Jersey, usually we just take the rule the two most recent statewide like gubernatorial contests. So even if it happens in 2017 and 2021, and we're looking from 2016 to 2022, we want to make sure that if two elections are included for a state that has normal gubernatorial years, the same is included for every state as well. Got it. And. Uh,
0: let's, let's shift a little bit from methodology to, to, some, to a little more practical. Um, Bradley, you, you teased this out, but what and where are the most evenly divided districts in the country uh, based on baseline?
2: So strap in, I'm going to start with a really big picture overview. Overall, there were 43 districts that fell within a five-point margin, with 25 of those slightly favoring Democrats. There were 83 districts within 10 points, 51 of which slightly favoring Democrats. And this is actually a question Jake would ask me at lunch a couple weeks ago. It turns out there are 18 Republicans representing seats with Democratic-leaning baselines and there are nine Democrats in seats with Republican-favored baselines. And the most interesting thing there is there's a lot of overlap with the 18 Republicans in Biden-held districts and the five Democrats in Trump-held districts. So even when you do dig deeper, a lot of the same stories start to emerge. And for that reason, when we look at the list of the 10 most evenly divided districts, there are a lot of usual suspects. You have people like John Duarte in California's 13th, Juan Siscomani in Arizona's 6th, I already mentioned Zach Nunn, we have Amelia Sykes in Ohio's 13th, all of those that inside elections race as tilt or toss-up for the respective party. Probably the more notable part, though, is once you go down the list of the top 10. You start getting representatives like Derek Van Orden, the Republican from Wisconsin, or his fellow Republican Brian Style, Both of which we have as likely, even though Baseline would suggest they're more tightly divided. Maybe that's something you can speak to, Nathan. Why is there yeah. a disconnect between our ratings and Baseline?
0: That's a that's a great question. Uh, you know, Baseline gives us that measure of a district or or of a state, but then we also have to account for. Factors in an individual race, like the uh, and in this and in these cases, Republicans have struggled. In with in the case of the Wisconsin districts, Republicans have uh, sorry, Democrats have struggled to get top tier candidates, top tier challengers in those districts. So they they might end up getting them, uh, by, by the end of the, you know, by the middle of the cycle, but, uh, it's those district or I would say race specific factors that also that go into our, our rating and not just the, not just the baseline of the
2: district. And for that reason, just one final, I think it's interesting to look at the 10 districts that are most evenly divided in total. You have all types of different competition represented. You have a handful of districts that were heavily Republican or heavily Hispanic and shifted towards Republican in the last two cycles. You have some suburban districts and the Wisconsin districts we just talked about were kind of drawn to be competitive. They take in both suburban and urban cores and stretch out into more rural areas as well. So regardless of which top 10 evenly divided baseline district you see, you can get a different story about why that district is so tight.
1: So we've heard a little bit about what the most evenly divided congressional districts are. Uh, but what about the flip side of that coin? What are the most uh, extreme or, or uh, maybe extreme is not the best word, but the most clearly partisanly uh, slanted either Democratic or Republican districts on the map?
2: Once again, it's a lot of the names you would expect. Most of the heavily Democratic districts are those in New York City or in the urban cores of California. You have Danny Davis's district in Illinois. And then on the Republican side, there's some of the most rural districts, some of the most expansive in the country. I'm looking at them in Alabama, Nebraska, Texas, Tennessee, Georgia, Kentucky. So again, even though baseline looks at different data than a lot of other metrics, it still arrives at a lot of the same conclusions.
1: And it's interesting you mentioned kind of the, the density question, uh, because something I've always been struck by in this, we've known this before baseline, but baseline really just illustrates it. If you look at the the most Republican by baseline district, uh, it's Alabama 4, Rob Adderholt, uh, that's a baseline of about... R plus 59, right? You'd think, wow, that's so Republican. And you scroll to the other side of the sheet and you look at the most democratic district, which is Adriano Espaillat, New York 13, uh, Harlem. Um, and And his baseline is D plus 82.2 right that's that's uh that's 23 extra points of democratic performance between the the most democratic district and the most republican district so it shows we know this but it's another illustration that the most democratic districts in the country are significantly more democratic than the most republican districts are Republican. And that's, uh, you know, some goes goes part of the way to explaining, I think, some of the geographical uh, advantages that uh, Republicans have have had in the House of Representatives in recent years.
0: Bradley, before I ask you um, uh, about the about the biggest challenge in in putting this together um i should say that you've already written uh, two articles on baseline one of them about the evenly divided districts and one really breaking down the methodology if you if any of you out there want to get into the weeds, even lower than the weed, into the roots of of, the, of this. Uh, Bradley really spells it all out. And if you want to see, uh, have a, a link or access to a Google sheet that has all the baselines for every single district and every single state, um, find Bradley's articles at insideelections.com and uh, and you can you can click on that. So, but Bradley, what was the biggest challenge in, in calculating the baseline metric?
2: I'd say the hardest part is the fact that once you figure out something for one state, you kind of have to figure it out for the other 50. So it became one of those processes that was very grinding and repetitive work. And then sometimes you would get halfway through the list, like you get to Mississippi, and then you realize that something doesn't work for Mississippi. So then you have to go all the way back and start over to see something that works for all 50 states. So even though it was a challenge, it also sets us up really well for the future because the same process we use to get 2016, 18, 20, and 22 We can use to get subsequent elections down the line
0: yeah and it would help if states stopped constantly redrawing their lines (laughs) so we don't have to keep we uh keep going going back to this or bradley's gonna he's gonna kill me maybe that'll happen on a future on a future (laughs) or or if there
1: was uh if there was a modicum of of consistency in how states report their election results Think that would? I've be... always
2: said that if I was elected president, my day one action would be consistent <laughs> precinct level results nationwide. I do not care that it is a state issue. I will take over that mean of production. Because <laughs> I
0: don't think people realize, and this is, if you're listening to this, you're probably not quite a normal person. But uh, but some states produce election result data, you know, at a, at a very granular and easy to digest, um, you know, excel file you know or files that are easy to digest other times it's like a grainy black and white pdf that's been scanned in on a on a on a fax machine or something it's just uh it it can really vary how these results are so there's a lot of uh, what was cleaning cleaning of the data before you can even get to the calculations you have to clean the data in order to to make it uh make it usable So, and with baseline, let's do a little bit of a T. With baseline, now we can quantify the strength and weaknesses of individual candidates, uh, which, Bradley, and we have a metric for that. Bradley, give people a little taste of what's to come.
2: Yeah, so we introduced y'all to baseline. Now we get to talk about vote above replacement or VAR. VAR is essentially just the candidate's performance minus the party's baseline. So the higher VAR, the better you did relative to expectations. This is something that we came up with around the same time as baseline half a decade ago, but now that we finally have congressional district level results, we can really dig into what VAR has to offer.
0: Yeah, and we're and we'll have we'll have a lot more on this. Um, we'll have a lot more on this in the future. But this this metric was kind of born out of a frustration that we just casually throw around. Oh, that's a strong candidate, or that's a that's a weak incumbent, or something. It's like, okay, well, let's let's look at the data. But you have to, in order uh, in order to measure strength and weakness, I feel like you had to have a baseline. Like, how would a typical or average candidate perform, and then we can measure we can measure against that.
1: Yeah. And, you know, to bring it all full circle, Nathan, you mentioned Brian Higgins uh, earlier on this podcast, uh, the Buffalo congressman who is leaving uh, before his term ends at the beginning of next year. Uh, and, Bradley, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Brian Higgins was the only Democrat to have a positive uh, VAR in uh, this last New York uh, election cycle, where Democrats really had a terrible uh, election year. Um, all across the state of New York, Brian Higgins was the lone, uh, candidate who bucked that trend. Uh, so he is a bit of an electoral giant, even if you probably couldn't, uh, pick him out of a lineup, uh, and he's leaving Congress, uh, in February.
2: Yeah. And to that point, just to tease our readers without giving much extra context, AOC had a VAR of negative 8.5. While former representative George Santos had a positive VAR of 7.3. So there were a lot of stories in New York alone, and we're excited to dig into them further.
0: If Santos finds out about this, he's definitely going to mention it. Mention it. Like a, <laughs> one of his cameo, his cameo things <laughs> or something. He's going to, we can probably, he's probably going to tweet that, tweet that out. We have to leak information to George Santos. Or we're going to get the AOC, uh, her crowd hating on us, but but that's okay. It's
2: the vote uh, above replacement.
0: Oh dear, oh dear. That's all right. We're here. We're on that note. (laughs) I think that's a cue that I think that's a cue. Our our time is done. Uh, But uh, let's move on. And finally, our last segment. Look what I found. Uh, where we highlight something new we've stumbled across. It could be political. It could be sports. It could be pop culture. It really could be anything. Uh, Jacob, what did you find?
1: I have been listening for a little while now to a podcast called Table Manners. It's hosted by Jessie Ware, who's a uh, English singer who, whose music I also like. But uh, the podcast is is her and her mother Lenny. It's a podcast about food. They interview celebrities. They make a meal for them and talk about the celebrities' history with food and what they grew up eating and and how. Uh, the food has impacted their their life um, and their careers. It's super interesting. It's uh, just something nice to put in the background when, you know, you're cooking dinner, uh, but they get really interesting people. Sir Paul McCartney, uh, Amelia Clark, Cher was on one of the re- most recent episodes. So uh, I would highly recommend checking it out uh, if you are looking for something to listen to.
0: If someone's looking for the opposite of that, then my family could have a podcast like Black, <laughs> Lack of Table Manners. <laughs> so everything you just said, like, think of the opposite. And I think that's what a glimpse into our, into our, our household. Uh, Bradley, what did you find?
2: So mine is less of a look what I found and more of a look what I finally got around to finding. I've taken the end of December to watch all of the movies that came out in 2023 that I haven't watched yet. So over the weekend, I saw Asteroid City by Wes Anderson. A couple of nights ago, I watched Barbie. I don't know what I'm going to do next. Probably not Oppenheimer because I've already had too much of an existential crisis.
0: <laughs> At first, when you say you watched all the movies, is that, I thought it's like you'd reached the end of the internet, like you'd found, you'd found the end.
2: Yeah, all the movies I want to watch are exactly those two. <laughs> but really, if people have recommendations for what else I should watch that came out in 2023, please let me know.
0: Well, yes, you could drop it in the comments, send Bradley an email. Uh, that would be great. Um, I found, I was trying to stay in the in the Christmas spirit as we're also covering politics. I found there are a lot of Bethlehems around the country. Uh, uh, you know, Bethlehem is the birthplace of Jesus and kind of focal point of the Christmas story in this holiday season. Uh, and so I wrote for Roll Call about uh, the, the political aspect of Bethlehem's around the country. For example, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, it's probably the largest Bethlehem in, in the United States. Uh, it's represented by Democratic Congresswoman Susan Wild, who's in a competitive district. Uh, this is a district that uh, Democrats have to re-elect her in order to have any chance of then gaining enough seats to to get to the House majority. But there are also Bethlehem's in Connecticut, in Georgia, and New Hampshire. Uh, I'm looking at my my list, even though I wrote the story to make sure that, uh, that I didn't forget about them. But there are there are political oh, Ohio, actually. Uh, Bill Johnson's district that we that we talked about earlier, uh, most of Bethlehem Township in Ohio is in that district. And that's a uh, Bethlehem Township in Ohio is in Stark County. And Sherrod Brown won Stark County in his initial race against Senator Mike DeWine. His margin in Stark County narrowed in his reelect. And then in his most recent 2018 race, he actually lost Stark County to Jim Renacci. And so that's a good example of how the state has shifted in the senator's Um, the senator's uh, path to victory is even more difficult than it was before. So, yeah, I I went all in on Bethlehem's uh, right before before Christmas. And that's all the time we have. We discussed the latest news in the House and the Senate, as well as the presidential race, and dove into our baseline metric. Thank you for joining us. At Inside Elections, we provide nonpartisan analysis of congressional, presidential, and gubernatorial races. With a combination of reporting and data, we break down the key races and bring valuable context to complex elections. Please go to InsideElections.com to subscribe to our biweekly newsletter. We've got individual subscriptions as well as group packages that are tailored for association and corporate packs. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and rate us on your favorite platform. If you're watching on YouTube, hit the thumbs up button and and subscribe there as well. Maybe even leave us a comment. Uh, If you didn't like today's episode, please email Santa Claus. We also want to thank our producers, Alan Tuzinski and Melissa Lenner of Pretty Easy Podcasts and our associate producer, Conrad Tolosa. Please come back. Join us again next time. Happy Holidays.